0: a relatively recent period of European history that is pretty silent. Everyone knows about the Second World War and the destruction and tyranny it trailed in its wake. But the focus of our remembrance has always been on the conflict itself and what was lost, rather than what happened immediately afterwards. In the years between 1945 and the early 1950s, much of Europe was simply sheltering in the mental and physical ruins people were worn down and although they were at peace nothing was easy these years are fading now from human memory if you ask my father who's in his 90s he says it was awful nothing was painted everything was filthy the clothes were awful the food was awful it was all awful nicola wood
1: now in her 80s was a child at this time i mean i didn't i didn't grow up with anything we never had sweets I didn't get toys at Christmas. I had one, one doll. Its face used to get painted and each year at Christmas, and my grandmother would make it a dress or something like that. We weren't consumers at all. We didn't have anything.
0: Nicola Wood was a teenager in the post-war years. Britain was broke. Most of the things she wanted were still rationed, and people led difficult, constrained lives. And out of this came a very real hunger, a form of sensory starvation.
2: The aesthetic effect of that was to do with colour and to do with that drab existence. It's not just because our generation sees that period in black and white. It was a much drabber time. And it's interesting when you see ex- exhibitions at the VA and you look in terms of fashion and all the rest of it. Things were darker, things were coarser. And what took place after this period of austerity, due to the war and, and, and the end of the war and rationing, was a, a generation that was just sort of looking to a, a more positive horizon. And looking for colour, looking for something different, looking for something to inspire. And I think this amazing moment takes place really through the energy and the vigour of what's going on um, through the art schools. And so it was this sort of wanting to turn away from the drab and the dull to something inspirational.
0: And that something inspirational turned out to be textiles, some of the most colourful, artistic and beautiful domestic textiles ever created, which, because they could be turned out relatively cheaply in large quantities, transformed people's lives, changing what they wore, what they sat on and how their homes looked. Welcome to Haptic and Hue's first series of podcasts, which looks at textiles of all kinds down the centuries and thinks about the role they play in our lives. I'm Jo Andrews and I'm a hand weaver and a broadcaster. And before you ask, haptic means the feel of something and hue describes the pure spectrum of colours. This podcast tells the story of the mid-century modern textile revolution in Britain in the 1950s and 60s. It looks at why it happened in Britain and not America, Italy, France or Germany, all of which had good textile traditions. And it puts the people into focus who brought this cutting-edge design into ordinary homes. Until this moment, design had belonged comprehensively to men. But in this story, for the first time, a cohort of women began to dominate a field of professional design and make a commercial success of it. Women like Lucien Day, Marion Marler, Jacqueline Grogue, Althea McNish and Nicola Wood, whom we heard from at the start of this podcast.
2: It's these amazing designers, these amazing artists who responded in a more open way, to what was happening in Europe and what was happening in the United States. It's almost as if the cork had popped out of the champagne and something new and fresh. They didn't know at the time, of course, that they were at the forefront of cultural change and that they were really leading it.
0: That's Ashley Gray, an expert in mid-century textiles. Revolutions don't just happen by themselves, as Karl Marx and others knew. You need some preconditions in place, and on the face of it, Britain after the war was a pretty unlikely place for any revolution. It was
2: often said that modernism would arrive in Britain from the continent, and we would sort of look at it and prod it around a bit and then wave it goodbye as it headed off to America. So we had this sort of tradition of being a little bit sort of unsure of these things.
0: Britain had seen considerable inward migration before the war, both forced and voluntary. Three of the biggest talents in this revolution all had migrant backgrounds one way or another, and as a result had their eyes and minds much more open to the design waves that had swept Europe. Jacqueline Grogue and her husband Jacques, a modernist architect, arrived as refugees in 1939. She was Czech by birth and had been a member of the Wiener Werkstätter, a successful and influential artisans cooperative in Vienna that predated the Bauhaus, but had enthusiastically taken up some of its approaches and ideas. Marian Mahler had also been to art school in Vienna, and fleeing Hitler arrived in Britain in 1937. And Lucien Day, Probably the best recognised, most versatile and successful designer of this generation. Sounds entirely like an English rose. She was certainly born here, but with the name Desiree Conradi. Her father was a Belgian businessman and she grew up in a cosmopolitan household with an aptitude for languages.
2: When one looks at this whole story of textiles, through our position as an island in Europe, we gained something extraordinary from the tragedy of the politics of the continent. So we gained people like Marian Marla Jacqueline Groag, Zika and Lida Asher as well, huge names in terms of developing fashion, developing design, who were forced to leave, in many cases, their own countries due to the rise of the Nazis and all of the horror that was taking place. And you'd look at Britain, we benefited so much it's a terrible thing to say that it was a benefit but culturally they brought something totally different to us and the great thing was over time it pushed open the parameters of the of the, of the brit mind if you like to look at things in a completely different uh, a different way and i think you cannot overemphasize the importance of that extraordinary mixture of individuals who had been associated with the Bauhaus or studied again at, in, in the leading think tanks of, of creativity, if you like, in the art schools and on the continent. And they brought their ideas and they brought their extraordinary vision to this country. and. We benefited from that, and and we still feel that and, and find that today.
0: And then there were the art schools with solid textile departments that never stopped training students despite the conflict. Some were more conservative than others, but there was a critical movement of teachers who had begun to understand that textiles could be something more than simply a commercial product. Instead, they could be a way to bring art to the people, and in this case directly into their homes. But whatever their aspirations, the art schools were not bastions of liberty. And as a new generation arrived at their doors, the schools were horrified to discover that many of them were women with dreams
1: of being painters and sculptors. Women like Nicola Wood. I wanted to be a painter. Well, first of all, we studied everything. Anatomy, architecture, history of art, history of costume, you name it life drawing costume life drawing composition everything color it was an amazing amazing education so at the end of that you could really do almost anything you had to have a specialty and so they put me into fashion that's not what i wanted i wanted to be a painter i asked to be changed out of fashion into the textiles because in the textile school They were throwing paint around, and it was fun. It really looked like fun. So that's how I got into textiles.
0: Nicola came from a tough background. She went to art school at 15 on a full grant, and later went on to the Royal College of Art in London, where, like many women of her generation, she found herself dismissed out of hand.
1: Roger Nicholson was our professor, and I always remember I was in his office for some reason or other, and he said to me quite casually... It's pointless teaching women. All they do is leave and get married and have children. And that really upset me. And it still rankles nearly 70 years later. I got so angry with Roger Nicholson. I didn't let him know I was angry, of course. He didn't do that. But for him to say that, I was like 24 at the time, just about to go out on my career. Women had a poor deal of it, unfortunately.
0: Nicola cast an envious eye at her art school
1: contemporary, David Hockney. Well, he was in the painting school. Lucky him. (laughs) I did see him there. He always looked like an an accountant because he wore a dark suit, (laughs) which was rather unusual in those days. But he was unusual in those days anyway.
0: She wasn't the only one this happened to. Her contemporary Barbara Brown wanted to be a sculptor but she too found herself in the textile department. 35 years earlier, Annie Albers, Gunter Stoltz, and so many other women had arrived at the supposedly equalitarian Bauhaus in Weimar, Germany, dreaming of metalwork and architecture, and had found themselves shunted into the weaving department as a safe destination away from the men. Albers later wrote, circumstances held me to threads and they won me over. I learnt to listen to them and speak their language. Nicola too learnt to speak the language of textiles and accept this
1: calling. But I was so into the textile thing by then. You know, I was good at it, that I just carried on. I went into it a whole hog. That's what I was doing, and I, and I did it. I loved doing it, because it was, it was almost like painting. In the 1920s and 30s, the women of the Bauhaus had shown
0: that forcing talent into one direction produced unexpected success. This time, the female textile designers in the 1950s and 60s Britain were instigators of a movement which comprehensively changed public taste.
2: There were two elements. There was the sort of the more progressive side that realised that textiles were a critical part of the overall story of the evolution of of art. And there were those that felt, oh, well, actually the sculpture and the painting is is for those who who really know how to do it. And, And actually, really, you're not going to be doing this for long, so you should do textiles. Now, if that was what was taking place... How wonderful that it was those who were, in a way, coerced into that area of textiles who found a voice that is more clear, more colourful, more impactful in the whole of the way that society then moved on, because they found a way of bringing their work into the home, as many artists, particularly contemporaries and modernists, who were, you know, a little different. and, And we were a conservative nation in Britain. And yet it was the textile designers who brought modernity literally into the, into the homes, into the sitting rooms, the lounges, and the bedrooms and the kitchens across Britain.
0: Britain also had intact textile factories with relatively modern production methods. When the war was over, firms like Edinburgh Weavers, Morton Sundor, David Whitehead, Heels and Liberties could switch back to private production quickly and start commissioning work. They were able to use good, new, colour-fast dyes, man-made fibres, and the development of screen printing and roller printing as commercial processes. This meant designers could bring a much more painterly eye to their fabrics and begin to incorporate abstract and modernist ideas for the first time. Here's
1: Nicola Wood talking about her design process. How I got doing abstracts in Southport was I had a microscope, and a dead bee. And I put the dead bee under the microscope and looked at all the colours and shapes. And and I, I was just doing paintings of what I saw in the microscope. And they were textile designs, of course, but they were paintings to me. And they were incredibly abstract and beautiful. These
0: were the building blocks of this very British Revolution, a public starved of colour and pattern, a diverse and talented group of textile designers comfortable with modernist ideas and abstract art, and a capable, and crucially, a functioning set of mills able to execute big orders. All that was needed now was a little spark to light this fire, and it came in the form of the Festival of Britain in 1951. This was largely held in temporary structures on the south bank of the Thames in London on sites. Its aim was to look forward and not back, so it didn't include traditional goods, but instead wanted to welcome a new age and show that the country had a future to celebrate. Lucian Day knew this would be an ideal showcase for her work, and a number of her textile and wallpaper designs were accepted by the committee. At the same time, her husband, the furniture designer Robin Day, was asked to put together a number of room settings, including a low-cost option. He asked Lucian to create some cheaper fabric for this, and she came up with what she described as a forward-looking design. She said, It's not a floral pattern. I tried to give it a sense of growth, and although abstract, it is in fact based on a plant. She took it to the legendary buyer Tom Worthington at the upmarket London furnishing store Heels and asked him to put it into production. He took one look at it and said, it won't sell a yard. He only agreed to produce it on condition she accepted half her usual fee. She needed it done for her husband's room, so she said yes. This design, called calyx, is one of the iconic textiles of the 20th century. And contrary to Tom Worthington's prediction, from the moment it was seen, it commanded almost universal admiration. It won awards in Italy and America, and sold by the mile in Britain, across Europe, and in the US. It chimed perfectly with the mood of the time. Lucian Day said later, All the things that went before Calyx were done because I wanted to sell them, and because I knew that although modern to some extent, they'd be acceptable to my clients. But what I was really interested in, the Bauhaus... Painters like Klee, Kandinsky and Miro, they gave me heart and made me feel I could do the same sort of thing for textiles.
2: Lucien Day stands the test of time because she opens a doorway to so many others who then came through that doorway. From the safe and the attractive and the decorative leading into the more challenging. The other thing that you find with her also, which is so important, and you find it with a number of the other textile designers, is they understood that they couldn't ever be caught sort of frozen in aspic. Their ideas moved with the years and the decades. They were able to develop in an exciting way. And I think in in many ways, when you look at the textile designers, you find it also with the generation that then comes up with Barbara Brown and others and Shirley Craven's um, stable also, you find that there was this capturing the essence of the moment, and i think that's the key well i suppose it's the key in so many things isn't it you've got to be able to capture the essence of the moment and also in a strange way sort of lead it and you see some of these designers and i think day certainly did that but then in in the later decade i think barbara brown does that as well because her powerful colors and her use of shapes and block and all of this they are utterly beautiful and now of course we look back and so many of these designs are the emblem of of the era.
0: And from that point in 1951, with that one unregarded and chanced design of Lucian days, this influential movement starts. People want this stuff. It's fresh, it's bright, it's original. Suddenly, these young women who'd been directed into textiles as a safe option to keep them occupied for a few years before marriage and maternity had buyers beating a path to their door, waving money, and often barely waiting until they were out of college or the paint was dry on the paper. It was a heady experience for Nicola and others like her. It was a
1: dream. It was heaven. I was in heaven. Everybody was wonderful. I loved what I was doing. We were breaking all the rules in a way, in a nice way. I don't think we knew it at the time. You're just doing it. You're being the time. I didn't think, gosh, I'm in the the swinging 60s. But everything that happened from miniskirts, Bieber's, these were all exciting things that we were all involved in. And it it was a wonderful, wonderful time. Her best-selling design was called Vibration. I didn't realise that Vibration would sell eight and a half miles on its first printing, but it felt good. I lived in Notting Hill Gate. On my street, there was a house that had my Vibration in the window, which gave me quite a thrill.
0: The colours, the shapes, the abstract nature of these designs shine down the years and still seem to our eyes fresh, crisp and appealing
2: innovative designers, and I think of Nicola Wood and the flames that come out of her textiles from Armada and others, it really allowed designers themselves to experiment, to push the boundaries out in a way that I think was the opposite to previous generations working in textiles in in Britain. When there was a certain way of doing it, there was a more conservative way of doing it. Uh, And during that post-Festival of Britain period, you had this really thrilling excitement of looking to wider horizons, learning from those who were in this country who had settled here and from the continent and elsewhere, but also looking at how things were developing through the abstract expressionists and the like. These were women with great open minds who were prepared to experiment and to pour, push the parameters wider, wider still.
3: When I worked in New York, I really wasn't making much money, particularly after I left the bank to go to what was my real love, the shipping business. So I ultimately, in New York, after a number of years, I began to look at things that would enhance my life. First, I looked at antiquarian books, and I don't really, really have to take it off the shelf to enjoy it. I want to come around the corner and see it. You know, when you ride the New York subway every day to work, it it's not the most attractive melu to be in every day so you want to you want to find something that's attractive when you come home at night you want to have something beautiful to look at
0: meet kirk brown the third who in the 1980s and 90s although he didn't have a lot of money was developing the soul of a collector a man in search of color and good design a chance trip took him and his wife jill to london where they were shown some 1950s textiles in the Target Gallery.
3: There was no plan at that point to make a collection of textiles, but what evolved was is that as time went along, they showed us more and more textiles, and we began to collect more and more of them, and we finally realized that we, you know, who were these people? And so we... Began to investigate who they were, and principally, we were collecting almost entirely designs by women. So we began to look into who were these, who were these designers, and where did they stand in the sort of cosmology of textile design and just design in general in the UK at that time period, from the late 40s, early 50s, 60s, and came to realize that, uh, in particular, Lucian Day was s- so important. And at that point, we we sort of changed from the randomness of our collecting to really focusing, making a concerted effort to to collect, in particular for Lucy and Day at least, all of the textiles that we could find. And some of them, of course, are now 70 years on and it are difficult to find at all in any kind of condition, let alone a good condition. And so that was the catalyst to Say these people are important, and we want to collect them. And we then made a concerted effort. Don't underestimate
0: what he means when he says a concerted effort. Here's the curator of his collection, Shanna Shelby.
4: Well, it's you know several hundred textiles. I think that specifically with the designer of designs of Lucy and Day. He and Jill have collected almost every design piece that wa- that was part of her um, overall textile designing history. And he even still now will find a very rare piece. And so I would say it's, it's almost complete in, in a way. Maybe he doesn't have every single colorway that was printed, but he has a representation of almost all of her designs. And so that's very impressive. And that's where that deliberate passion focus to complete the collection it really shows up. And I would say the same is true for Jacqueline Groeg's designs. Years ago, he purchased a number of the drawings, collages, preparatory sketches, I would say. And so that was a huge coup to be able to have those as a complement to the textile designs. Kirk and
0: Jill have more than 650 mid-century British textiles in their collection, most of which they picked up online or from dealers at very reasonable prices. It's the world's largest collection of mid-century textiles in private hands.
3: I have a warehouse here in Denver. All the important textiles are rolled on archival tubes and then uh, wrapped in plastic and uh, tied off at the ends. Those are the, the textiles that we have uh, sent for exhibitions. That's how we sent them out. That's how they're stored. And we created that storage system. And then other textiles, we have very some very large flat files where the textiles are spread out in each of these drawers and between each Textile is usually a piece of uh, acid-free paper.
0: And they still make room for just a few of their favorites framed and on their walls at home. Kirk and Jill are generous with their collection and loan pieces out to museums and galleries around the world. Shanna Shelby, Kirk and Jill's curator, says the textiles are popular in the States.
4: I think that the British passion for design and good quality is something that has always been attractive to Americans. I think American style is, in general, with design, you know, quicker, dirtier, cheaper, if that makes any sense. And I think that the attraction to the British design is based in that um, desire for high quality, excellent design. And I think that there's a long history of design industry in England that Americans didn't really have. And so I think that that training and thoughtfulness and history there is is what really has drawn Americans to British design. And slowly, over the years, the perception
0: of these fabrics has begun to change. The cloth that survives is now seen less as a domestic material, and more of a piece of art well
4: i see them as art because i've always appreciated the design quality of them and so when you when you look at them in that way you can really appreciate the the difficulty that textile design would take and so being able to take one simple design and use multiple colorways and still be successful is a design issue that no other artist really has to approach except for maybe you know fine art printing, let's say. So there's a, a respect of the, the process and also the technique and the imagination that it takes to produce a successful textile. Yes, they were designed as a furnishing fabric, but they became such a statement inside the home In a way, it was more personal in the way that fashion is a personal reflection of your own taste. And so I think that because of that personal reflection, it was more impactful, more emotional than, let's say, you know, a modern work of art that you would frame and hang on a wall. Kirk Brown, too, sees them as art.
3: Well, they certainly have the utilitarian side to them as having graced people's bedspreads or curtains or sofas or whatever they use them for. But it depends on the, the opinion of the, of the viewer, whether they consider them art or, or simply design. And I know that I think an evolving appreciation for them as, as fine art and whether that's ubiquitous appreciation or not, I don't know. But it's certainly, it, there, there's more and more interest in them and that, that particular niche, and particularly those designers that were um, so prominent in uh, the post-war period.
4: An
0: exhibition of these textiles, co-curated by Ashley Gray at Masson's in Wiltshire earlier this year, had a number of pieces for sale. I saw some of them this summer restored and mounted as art. The colours and the sheer design quality of these magnificent pieces simply knock you in the eye. But are they worth several thousand pounds a piece?
2: The textiles were being produced as commercial objects for sale to be used in the home. At the time... They would have been incredibly fashionable for a moment and then things moved on and people redid their homes in, in, in a different way. Indeed, some of the textiles, particularly by the modernist artists, were quite an acquired taste at the time. But now, when one finds these, here is a way at a still affordable to a degree level of bringing modernism into the home. The only other way of doing that, when it looks at the explosion in modernism in Sotheby's and Christie's and elsewhere worldwide, where there's a huge desire for these pieces, the prices are astronomical. But within this particular area, within this particular market of the art world, it is still possible today to find a way in. If you love and are inspired by those decades, there is still a possibility to start a collection without completely breaking the bank. It is something different, I agree. It is something unusual to see them literally, rather than being hung just as a textile itself, being hung as fine art. But to my mind, they've earned that right because they are now the works that are inspiring a new generation of artists and they are important.
0: No one thinks this period of explosive innovation and creativity in textile design will happen again. But Ashley Gray believes textile departments in art schools are still producing good work.
2: I go to the degree shows. I go to the shows in London. I went to a degree show. I won't name the art school. And I went to look in the art department and there was all sorts of conceptual work. There were strange noises. There was sort of piles of things on the floor. And I felt really dispirited. There was nothing of beauty. There was nothing ephemeral. There was nothing really that that did anything but irritate one. As I left, there was a sign to the textile department. I walked into that textile department, and I saw some of the most beautiful things I've seen in a long, long time. Textiles of subtle colours, literally just either framed or floating or hung beautifully, beautiful colours, beautiful designs, some drawing on the history of art, some completely new. Now these are things of unbelievable beauty and to my mind in the world of today it's within the textile departments of our art schools where there is still something beautiful being produced something innovative being produced and something that can appeal and reassure and inspire all of us.
0: So the next time your grandmother or your great aunt tries to foist an old curtain on you, take a closer look. You may have something worth hundreds or even thousands of pounds in your hands that draws its inspiration from the great art movements of the last century today we may well think these fabrics beautiful and well designed but can we go beyond that and understand what they meant and how they made people feel in the 1950s how did these textiles speak to the people for whom they were produced of peace and home and joy, and of an end to hardship and the start of better times. Seen in that way, these domestic fabrics transcend their purpose and become symbols of intense longing and an immense hope for a better world. This episode of Haptic and Hue was written, narrated, edited, and produced by me, Joe Andrews. Many thanks to Ashley Gray for his expertise, to Kurt Brown for telling us about his extraordinary collection, to Shanna Shelby for sharing her love of all things material, and most of all to Nicola Wood who, contrary to her professor's dire predictions, did not take the path of marriage and maternity, but did become a painter as she wanted, and has supported herself with her own talent and skill throughout her long life. You can find show notes at hapticandhuecom forward slash listen, where I provide a complete transcript of this podcast and a list of resources and background reading that you might enjoy as well as pictures of some of the women who were part of this story and the designs they produced. You can sign up there to get these podcasts directly into your inbox and have a chance to win the textile-related gifts that I give away with each episode. You'll also find blogs and other information about textiles and Haptic and Hue there. Next time, I'll be focusing on a woman who has spent more than half a century as a maker, designer and teacher. This episode will look at the weaver Janet Phillips, and it asks what it takes to make a living doing something that you love. Join me in two weeks' time for another episode of Haptic and Hue, and thanks for listening.